Welcome to today's podcast from Include NYC. I'm Jean Mizutani, and today's topic is how inclusion came to New York City. Few people have as much firsthand knowledge and experience with inclusion in New York City as Dorothy Siegel, and we are thrilled to have her as our guest. Dorothy was an early pioneer for inclusive education, educational programming for students with disabilities in New York City, and has continued advancing the cause over several decades. Beginning in 1990, Dorothy has innovated and advocated for new special education reform models that led to the launching of New York City's first inclusion program at the Children's School in Brooklyn. In 2002, Dorothy's collaboration with Shirley Cohen of Hunter College and the New York City Department of Education led to the development of New York City's highly regarded ASD NEST program, which now serves 1,100 children with autism spectrum disorder all over New York City. People who know Dorothy have described her as a trailblazer, an activist, a believer, and above all, fearless, one who is not discouraged by obstacles. She is the kind of advocate many of us aspire to be, and I'm very grateful to be invited to her home for this conversation. Welcome, Dorothy. Thank you, and thank you for that very lovely introduction. All deserved. So you started to become familiar with special education in New York City in the 80s. What was it like for kids with disabilities up to that point? Uh, not good. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, the situation for kids with disabilities was heartbreaking. Some children were warehoused in big state institutions, like the infamous Willowbrook State Hospital in Staten Island, or in their families' attics. Mm. Most school districts didn't take responsibility for educating them. Many states' laws held that such children were, quote, medically exempt from access to state-provided education. Some states, such as New York, however, had publicly funded schools for different categories of disabled children, the blind, the deaf, and forgive me, the mentally defective. Then, in 1975, thanks to the strenuous advocacy of parents, Congress passed um, a, a law, PL 94142, mm -hmm. um, also known as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, uh, which ultimately became IDEA. This law guaranteed the right to a free, appropriate public education, or FAPE, in the least restrictive environment, or LRE, to all children with disabilities in every state. After that, states and school districts across the country were legally required to evaluate children suspected of having a disability and educating them. New York City in the late 1970s was in the throes of a serious financial crisis and avoided complying with the law. Numerous lawsuits were filed. Then in 1979, several of these suits were consolidated into the famous Jose P. case, which forced the city to conduct evaluations and provide education for thousands of previously unserved children. Thanks to the Jose P. lawsuit, New York City's special ed structure expanded rapidly, and the city created hundreds of separate, self-contained special ed classes exclusively for children with disabilities. 
A typology of mild, moderate, severe disability was created to denote each child's functioning level. These special ed programs were operated by a centralized Board of Education structure located within but separate from the neighborhood schools that educated all other children. Neighborhood schools were then under the control of 32 community school boards. The new special ed classes were often placed on the top floor or in the school's basement. Students in these classes were often treated like unwelcome tenants, excluded from the life of the school in which they were located. This was education that was very separate um, and, as several studies showed, decidedly not equal. That's really interesting because, you know, I think everybody would agree things are not perfect now, but hearing that background just tells us how far we've come. It's really, really an amazing story how far we have come. True. So, Dorothy, tell me, what was happening in your personal life at the time? Well, um, in 1970, I graduated from the Yale School of Music with a master's degree in performance, in clarinet to be precise. Music. Music, yes. Um, I'm a musician, or I was. Um, I moved to New York City, and I decided not to continue as a professional musician. In 1977, I co-founded New Tech Computer Systems, which manufactured a computer output device we called a music board that could be programmed to play music. If you wanted to own your own computer in 1977, you had to assemble it yourself from a kit, which my husband and my partner did. Uh, I began showing up on radio and TV, demonstrating how to play my clarinet or flute accompanied by a computer, which was good because uh, people kept asking, what can you do with a computer? Why would anybody want one? What are they good for? In 1978, my husband and I bought a fixer-upper house in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and spent 30 years fixing it up. Our first child, Elizabeth, was born in 1979. Sam was born in 1982. And I became the PTA president of Elizabeth's Elementary School, PS29, in 1985. I had always believed that a good public school is a fundamental right of every child. I saw that most African-American and other minority children were not being afforded the opportunity to be educated in a good public school. I felt that that had to change. Inequities had to be addressed. I knew that was a problem of educational inequity. But at that time, I didn't know much about inequity based on dis disability status. You had so many paths you could have taken, but you chose to turn your attention to education. Correct. The system was decentralized in 1985. Most people don't know what that means or how it affected students with disabilities. Well, um, back in 1985 or 86, um, I don't remember exactly, the Board of Ed decided to, quote, decentralize to the community school districts. The responsibility for evaluating and educating students with mild or moderate disabilities while the education of students with severe or low-incidence disabilities remained in a centrally run bureaucracy. Even after this so-called decentralization, not much changed for the special ed children housed in community schools. Their classes were usually taught by the least experienced and or least well-trained teachers, some of whom were not even licensed. In those days, special ed teachers didn't receive the same training in the regular academic curriculum as general ed teachers. Because special ed students were not residents of the school's attendance zone, they had to take buses to and from school, which resulted in being stigmatized as bus children. 
They lost an hour or more a day of instructional time. They were typically excluded from regular school activities like assemblies, even from their own graduation ceremonies. In my humble opinion, the segregated education these children received was cruel, demeaning, and humiliating. Their parents found it hard to effectively advocate because the schools did not recognize that these children belonged in their school. Rather, they belonged to something called special ed. Special ed had become a place separate from those places inhabited by regular children and demonstrably inferior. Terrible. So you experienced these realities firsthand as a parent looking for a school that would work for your child in 1987. Tell us more. Well, what I just described um, was the situation as it existed when my son Sam turned five in 1987. When I had noticed that Sam wasn't developing normally, I couldn't find anyone who could tell me what his problem was or what I could do to help him. I literally cried every day out of frustration and out of despair. Then when he was five years old, Sam was admitted to the Gateway School, a tiny publicly funded state regulated private school in Manhattan. Because it is publicly funded, my husband and I didn't have to pay a penny. Gateway worked hard to almost literally pull him out of his autism. They gave him the tools to understand the world around him and helped him learn to control his impulsivity. After five years at Gateway, he matriculated to another wonderful publicly funded private school, known as an NPS, called the Summit School. My husband and I believe that Gateway and Summit literally saved Sam's life. So in the process of my interactions with the school system, I became aware of the appalling state of affairs involving special education children. The most disturbing to me was that a majority of the 120,000 children with so-called mild or moderate disabilities in the system at that time were receiving an inferior education in segregated classrooms on the periphery of their school communities. I couldn't reconcile that fact with the reality of my son Sam's improving life prospects at Gateway. It simply wasn't fair that my son had a shot at becoming a happy functioning adult and so many other mother's sons did not. This was an educational inequity I felt I had to address. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. That's the, um, the old-fashioned take lemons and make lemonade story. I made lemonade. So you made lemonade. So you saw inequity and you addressed it. How did you do that? Well, I decided to run for a seat on the local school board, District 15, where I served from 1989 through 1993. There were two motivating factors for me. First, I wanted to examine and make public how equitably or inequitably resources were being distributed. Mm. And second, I wanted to push for our district to provide a good education for special education children equal to the education Sam was enjoying at Gateway. I understand that you started um, a District 75 special education task force around the same time. Um, tell us a little bit about it, including its goals and mission. Well, it was a District 15 special education task force. Oh, District 15. Right. Um, we worked with District 75, but it was a District 15 special ed task force. Uh, that started in 1990. I co-chaired that task force. Um, its goal was to make recommendations to improve education for District 15's children with disabilities, such that their education would be equal to that of their general education peers. The task force made 
I believe, 29 recommendations in all, ranging from mounting a serious teacher recruitment effort to a policy that placed children in their home zone school whenever possible, to moving self-contained special ed classes out of the basement and off of the top floor into classrooms immediately adjacent to their age-appropriate peers. Most of our recommendations didn't cost anything to implement, mm. and the district superintendent, to his everlasting credit, <laughs> faithfully implemented these recommendations. Our most important recommendation was for the district for the district was based on our belief that children are more alike than they are different, and they should be educated together whenever possible. You see, in 1990, special education and general education children were not only physically segregated, they weren't even listed on the same um, enrollment register. That made it impossible to place them in the same classroom. It was also impossible to assign two teachers to one classroom. The computer won't let you, they told me. <laughs> Our task force was determined to break down these, these structures and integrate general and special ed children into one classroom or to educate them together. So this was in 1990? Yes. And the, those were the first inclusive classes in New York City? Um, well, the first inclusive classes started with the children's school, which was um, a collaboration between my district, District 15, and District 75. This school would be based on an inclusive classroom model that served both general ed and special ed students. There were two teachers and one paraprofessional with 22 students in one kindergarten classroom. We called it Collaborative Co-Teaching, or CCT, uh, later changed by the Board of Ed to Integrated Co-Teaching, or ICT. There were a few national models for inclusion, but none looked like this one. The Children's School opened its doors in 1992 um, and the CCT classroom model spread in subsequent years to many other District 15 schools. In former, informal test score analysis in the late 1990s indicated that the average academic achievement of, of District 15 special ed students was greater than that of comparable students in other districts. No other districts in New York City at that time adopted that model. District 22 in Brooklyn was the only other single other community school district that had what I thought was an enlightened attitude towards special education. So special ed inclusion really happened in Brooklyn first? Yes. And it, it's really interesting because almost every New York City parent has heard about the children's school in District 15 in Brooklyn. I mean, everybody talks about it. Parents are thrilled when their child is, is accepted there, but very few know how it came to be. I certainly didn't know that. I also recall that around 1999, the Department of Education came out with a new continuum of services for children with disabilities and that the integrated co-teaching model became an option citywide. Was it successful? Segregation of special ed students in New York City was much greater than anywhere else in the entire country, and that's not hyperbole. As a result, the state and local and federal governments pressured the New York City Board of Education to reduce that segregation. In 1999 or 2000, the city responded by issuing a new continuum of services that spelled out the composition and funding ratios for a number of placement options along a continuum from most to least restrictive. 
The most restrictive placement was one in which there was no education with typically developing students. The least restrictive placement was complete inclusion in a general ed setting. The ICT model was listed on this continuum for the first time as a less restrictive option. Unfortunately, inclusion on the continuum was not accompanied by a corresponding push from top officials. The city invested few resources into turning the least restrictive environments like ICT into effective learning experiences embedded in a coherent, consistent inclusion philosophy. Schools needed training and support to make this approach work. ICT had become, it seemed, simply a checkbox that allowed system bureaucrats to check off the LRE box on government compliance forms. Technical compliance was the measure of success under the Bloomberg-Klein regime. Even worse, this indifference to quality inclusion within a top-down framework of worshiping standardized test scores, marginalized students who, because of their disability, weren't likely to score well on those tests. In a system of winners and losers, special ed kids were clearly life's losers. Mayor Bloomberg often articulated his belief that children should learn that particular life lesson well to spur them on to work harder and achieve more. Not just students with disabilities, but schools and teachers their schools and teachers were blamed for their poor test scores. It was not a healthy dynamic in which students with disabilities could learn and grow. That sounds like a wasted opportunity to me. And a destructive one. What is the state of inclusion in New York City today? Well, in, in 2012, we had the same mayor but a different chancellor, Chancellor Dennis Walcott, and he um, took an important step forward when the, dis the DOE mandated that students should be educated in their home zone school whenever possible. From a system standpoint, that was a really good decision. Making the home zone school the default option tends to move children toward the least restrictive environment and forces their schools into accepting responsibility for their education. Many schools, newly required to meet the needs of a more diverse set of learners, accepted responsibility for all their students and tried to figure out how to provide them with a good education. Lack of training and support was, I believe, a reflection of Mayor Bloomberg's disdain for professional development. Teachers and principals hadn't ever learned how to identify and address special needs. It wasn't part of their education. But the Bloomberg-Klein regime refused to invest in training them to learn how. To Mayor Bloomberg and Chancellor Klein, it was all about slicing and dicing test scores and holding schools accountable for those scores, which reflect the family income or disability status of the students much more than the teaching of their faculties. Without the training and support they needed, schools struggled to do inclusion well. Fortunately, when Carmen Farina became Chancellor, professional development around effective teaching strategies and practices became a big focus. Schools now have more than two hours per week of time to focus on in-school professional development. Carmen believes in the transformative power of caring, well-trained teachers to mold young children. So she put serious resources into good professional development and we focus schools on how to teach and support all learners, preferably in inclusive environments. So ICT classes became common in neighborhoods in neighborhood schools. Carmen also restructured the Department of Ed to reinstate geographically based districts, 
which made it possible for all schools to access the support they need to help their diverse learners. But while I believe great progress has been made systemically, not every school has embraced the responsibility to educate students with disabilities. And even if they have, some do not understand what they need to do to educate these students. I do believe that New York City is on the right track. The Department of Ed Special Ed Leadership, basically Deputy Chancellor Corrine Rello and Selmy, gets it. And she is pulling hard in the right direction. If you were to change one thing about teacher training programs at universities, what would that be? Well, if it's all right with you, I'd like to talk about two things, Great. not one. First, teacher training programs need to offer specific instruction in how to teach in an inclusion classroom. Marilyn Friends' The Power of Two describes this how of co-teaching, which is very powerful when it's done correctly. Second, the what of inclusion is equally important. Teachers should be trained on universal prevention strategies that make their classroom environments calmer and more welcoming to students with and without disabilities. One obvious example of such a prevention strategy is to make teachers aware how to identify and meet the sensory needs many children have that often lead to unacceptable behavior. Another obvious example is to train teachers how to incorporate visual supports and step-by-step -step instructions into everything they do in their classrooms. These strategies would go a long way to eliminating small issues before they escalate into big problems. In short, teachers need to be trained how to make their classrooms into environments in which all students feel that they are successful and that they belong. That is, that they feel that they are included. Well, you know, because the um, ratio, the number of students with disabilities is pretty large in New York City, there's a lot for each school to figure out. It is challenging, and it seems to be that it's getting harder, not easier, simply because of class size, for example, among other factors. So even with the best intentions, some schools have not figured it out. What can parents do if, the, if their child's school hasn't been one of the lucky ones that have? The, the best thing for parents to do is to become educated on um, what inclusion is and what needs to be done um, and work within their um, school's parent-teacher association to um, work with the principal to um, install inclusive practices. Um, this is first, of, first and foremost an attitude change um, and it's not that teachers have bad attitudes but there was always a distinction between regular children and children who had a disability. Um, and um, teachers and principals did not see children with disabilities as children who needed to be educated. Um, so, and they did not see themselves as experts in that area. So that's the first thing that has to change in a school, and I think parents can do that. When I got on the school board in the fall of 1989, and I went to my first public meeting, um, I introduced myself to the audience. And um, I introduced myself as the mother of a second or third grader in PS 29 and, and the mother of a son with special needs. You could have heard a pin drop. Mm. People didn't believe that I would admit that because somehow there was something wrong with you 
because there was definitely something wrong with your child. Um, and that, so that's the attitude change that has to happen. Um, and uh, after that, then they need to know, um, and parents can work with their schools on this, how to educate these children. You don't just drop a child with a disability in a general ed classroom with 25 or 30 kids. You have to think about how to do inclusion right. Um, putting a child like in, in a situation like that is what I call drop and pray. Drop the child <laughs> in the class and pray that everything goes well. But that's not a recipe for success. Wow. So school principals are now responsible. They're ultimately responsible for the provision of all special education services in their schools. Do you think principals have embraced that role? Many have. Many. Yes, but um, you know it runs counter to their training and their experience. Um, the name of the game in New York City forever was um, push out a kid um, who was more difficult to educate right. and concentrate on the ones that you could teach mo most easily. Push out meant push them into a self-contained class right. um, or better yet, push them into somebody else's school. One trick that um, used to happen all the time uh, when I got on, at the time that I was getting on the school board, was that schools wouldn't have a class for a certain child. Um, they'd say, oh, well, he needs, this child needs a, um, um, a more language-rich class, which mm. at the time was called <laughs> Ms. 3. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, we don't have a Ms. 3 class here, so he's going to have to go to PS 38, which has Ms. 3 classes. So schools that um, were doing their job well would manage to have no such classes for any kind of child with special needs. And um, so that was, the, that was the way principals were brung up, so to speak, right. in those days. Right. It is a work in progress. It definitely is. And I, I think one of the successes of the reform is that at this point in time, most schools have the same number of students with disabilities enrolled as naturally occurs in their district. Instead of one school having 45%, another school having 2%, it is more evenly distributed. Right, and this is, this is a conscious policy effort of the current administration. And, and uh, to give him credit, I believe Chancellor Walcott started to work on that. So how can inclusion programs be improved? Because no matter what, we're still not completely there yet. Well, I would suggest these five things. Um, as being most cost-effective um, to improve inclusion. First and foremost, teachers need training. They need training on both the how and the what of inclusion. There's a body of knowledge out there about successful inclusion. ICT teachers need to be exposed to that knowledge and they need to practice it in their own classrooms. Second, once trained, ICT teachers need time to co-plan with each other two or three times a week. This can be accomplished without any cost, simply by scheduling common preps. The third is collaboration. Teachers need time to collaborate with other teachers and with related service providers in a regular, structured format, such as team meetings or inquiry groups, where staff discuss and develop individual student plans that are shared and implemented by all professionals who work with that child across all settings. This is also an inexpensive or no-cost improvement. Fourth, I believe there should be a master special ed teacher in every school, at least one, trained in both the how and the what 
of inclusion. The master special ed teacher would help mentor ICT teachers in those best practices. Since the master teacher concept is spelled out in the UFT contract, this is another relatively inexpensive and easy to implement improvement. Fifth, the expensive one, class size. Mm -hmm. I believe that the ICT model is the best setting for most students with disabilities, but it won't work well if class sizes are so large that individualization is difficult. I would reduce the register of ICT classes to no more than 18 students in kindergarten, 20 in grades one and two, and 24 in grades three to five. Some of these fixes are small, but some are larger. I mean, this would take a collective commitment. There is expense involved. But not much, <laughs> in my view. It's a, great way, it's a great way to look at it. And right. I think, you know, many parents would think that those classes were still too large for their child with a disability to do well in, a large, you know, in an inclusion class. But still, it would be an improvement. And I hope that the system is thinking well, of that. Well, those sizes are not much larger than the nest class sizes with which we have a lot of experience. Right. And true, I would love a kindergarten with two teachers and 12 children for all children. But um, being realistic, I think we could aim for 18. I would too. I think it's great. So I love this because knowing where we've been helps us identify where we want to go in the future. It's a very important conversation that we really, really appreciate you having with us. Um, we mentioned earlier that Dorothy is a master in the clarinet. We talked a little bit about it, about her early um, collaboration with computer music. At that time, it was completely unknown. So we've decided now to end with a little treat. We will leave you with a bit of the music from a concert performed at the first Philadelphia Computer Music Festival in 1978. Dorothy accompanies a computer on her clarinet. Enjoy. Dorothy, thank you so much. We really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jean.
Thank you. 